Good morning, Wallenstein. We are studying today in John chapter 4, a message I'm going to call Follow Me to the Harvest. John chapter 4. So uh, if you could turn there with me, we'll, we'll get started right away. Um, it's pretty common in our day and age to, uh, to hear about these kinds of pictures. Um, people call this a photo bomb. So I don't know if this one was set up, but here you have a guy proposing to his fiancée, and apparently a jogger has, uh, has entered uh, the shot. And, uh, and there's a dog back there too. Um, I, sometimes I think we actually have this kind of trouble with passages in Scripture, and I think this happens quite a bit in the Gospels, where we get distracted by a detail, an important detail, and sometimes we miss an even bigger detail, more important detail than the one that we focused on. An example of that, probably the classic example, is the story we call um, the prodigal son. And of course, much of the story is about this prodigal son who takes off from the, the family home and, and squanders his inheritance. But actually, in the context of that story, the lesson is actually far more about the older son, the son who stayed home. Uh, the son who is angry about his father forgiving the prodigal son. I think this is the same thing that can happen here in John chapter 4. Some of you are very familiar with this story, and if you are, you probably think of it as uh, the story of the woman at the well. That's often the way that we refer to it. I'm hoping today we'll see that there's something else going on here that's really, really important. So let's read a few verses, uh, starting in verse 1. Uh, it says, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And notice verse 4. He had to go through Samaria. Uh, that is a detail that John, as, as a writer here, provides and I, I see it as kind of a carrot that he dangles in front of all of us who are reading and studying this. And it's, it raises this question, so why? Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? I've got a map here. Some of you would be familiar with this, but uh, Judea is here in the south of the land of Palestine. Uh, the city of Jerusalem would be here. And then, of course, Galilee is to the north. Uh, this is where Jesus grew up. This is where he did much of his ministry in the gospel stories. Samaria lies right between the two. So if, we, if we're into geography, we might simply say, well, that, that's a simple answer to, to the question, why did Jesus need to go through Samaria? Well, it's because Samaria is between Judea and Galilee, where he was heading. So obviously it was simply a matter of geography, but some of you would know that that's not actually the case, that the people who lived in Samaria, the Samaritans, were not well liked. In fact, I think I could say they were hated by the Jewish people. Uh, the Samaritans were a people group who were part Jewish um, and part Gentile. And when the Assyrian army had conquered the kingdom of Israel years, uh, generations before, they had repopulated that land um, with a mixture of Jewish people and, and Gentile people, non-Jewish people. And of course, those people intermarried. And so from the Jewish perspective, the Samaritans were now a, a mixed race or a tainted race even. 
no longer truly the people of God because uh, because uh, of their race. And so there was a lot of animosity between Jewish people and the Samaritans, which is one of the reasons why the story of the Good Samaritan is was so shocking, so surprising to uh, the disciples and anyone who would have heard Jesus tell that story because he he makes a Samaritan the hero of of that story. So why did Jesus need to go through Samaria? It wasn't simply a matter of geography because most Jewish people didn't travel through Samaria. You can see that region is fairly hilly. They would drop down into uh, the Jordan River Valley where it's flatter and they would head north that way. Um, not only because of the geography, but also just to stay away from those Samaritan people that they hated so much. Why did John include that? He obviously wants us to think as he fills in the rest of the story. He wants us to be asking, so why did Jesus need to go through Samaria? Was it simply a matter of geography? I don't think it was. So why? Um, so let's read on a little bit more. Verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So I'm, I'm wanting to help you see here that when the gospel writers tell these stories, the, the questions or the details that they include are there for a, a really important reason. So we've mentioned one, verse four, this little carrot, this statement that he had to go through Samaria. But this is an interesting one, too, that this whole story is going to take place at, uh, at Jacob's well. Uh, this, when we think of Jacob here, we're, we're talking about the patriarch, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes. His 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Uh, so this is a really interesting detail. Why would Jesus let this story unfold here in this location? Why was John so careful to make sure we knew that this whole thing is taking place at Jacob's well? Well, there's a few reasons. Uh, what we're going to find in this story is that this might be one of the few places in Samaria where both Jews and Samaritans could feel like they are on their home turf. It's Jacob's well, right? So obviously the Jewish people, like Jesus and the disciples, would have felt like that's a pretty cool place to be. I mean, a place where their ancestor, their patriarch, had uh, he had drank from that well. Uh, he, his children, the, the 12 sons of Jacob, had drank from that well. And just like we often like to go to places where historic events took place, it would have been a special place for, for the disciples to be. But, of course, it was also a special place for the Samaritans to be. And they were kind of claiming Jacob as their own. And we see that as the story unfolds in the way that the woman uh, speaks to Jesus um, about the well. Uh, you see that in verse 12. She says to Jesus when they're talking about drawing water from this well, she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. So Jacob's well and the patriarch Jacob play a part in this story. Uh, it's not just common ground for both Jews and Samaritans. I also think there's some really profound meaning here. The promise 
that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and then to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26 and then to Jacob himself here in Genesis 28 was this. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm not sure how much the Jewish people thought about that or how much they actually liked that. But what is unfolding in this story is actually the fulfillment of this promise that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, that he would bless them and he would bless their offspring. He would bless the nation of Israel. But the reason that he was going to bless them is so that Israel would impact all the nation's of the earth. All peoples of the earth would be blessed through the people that God blessed, his people, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's one of the reasons I think this is really cool, that this whole thing takes place at Jacob's well, uh, the patriarch of Israel, common ground for both Jews and Samaritans, but also a reminder of this profound promise that God had made to the patriarchs that through their offspring, which of course would include the Jewish disciples and more importantly, Jesus, the Jew, all peoples on earth will be blessed. So we'll keep that in mind as we carry on. So much of the story, as I've said already, takes place at this well, and it's a conversation that takes place between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. Notice verse seven, a Samaritan woman came to draw water Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town, the Samaritan town, to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then in parentheses, it says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So John helps us understand the, uh, the animosity, the, the hatred between Jewish people and Samaritan people, and it's embedded right here in the story. So these next number of verses um, provide the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. And this is the part of the story that we fixate on. This is what we tend to think is the main part of the story, and it really is good. Uh, I don't want to minimize that in any way. The conversation that takes place is, is tremendous, and uh, so we see Jesus and the woman talking about Jacob and Jacob's well. And then we find Jesus using the metaphor of water as he sits there with the woman at the well and uh, uses that to describe what he offers as the savior of the world. He offers this living water uh, that can spring up in our souls and satisfy us and and fill every every ache and every need in our hearts. Um, so there's a few a few um, places that uh, this story goes, but I want us to notice some things about the woman. Uh, first of all, we see that she came to the well alone. A lot of people point out that that's strange. It would be very strange for a woman to come to the well alone. It would be very strange for a woman to come to the well at noon. Um, so uh, this was a patriarchal society, meaning that uh, women did not have uh, the same place as men. And so they were forced to do some of these menial and even difficult tasks like carrying water. That's still true in, uh, in places around the world today, in Africa and places in the Middle East. Um, so it's strange because most women would come to the well in the morning when it's cool 
it was <laughs> carrying water is not an easy thing to do. It's it's heavy. So they would do it first thing when the sun wasn't up, when the temperatures were still cool, and they would come together. And why wouldn't you uh, do it as a, as a group of friends rather than uh, take that trip and, and do all that work by yourself? So people point this out, that it's strange that the woman came alone. It's strange that the woman came at noon. And then we find as the story unfolds that she had a, I'm going to call it a, a life of shame. Notice in verse 15, Jesus has been offering this woman his living water. And she says, sir, verse 15, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So I don't know if she was being kind of facetious and, and poking fun at Jesus or if she was serious. But the Lord's answer to her in verse 16 is, is shocking. It, I find it, uh, it makes me feel uneasy because his response to her has nothing to do with water. He changes the subject and he says, go call your husband and come back. Well, that might not seem so strange, except for the woman's answer. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus follows that up by saying, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So here's here's what's interesting. Um, maybe troubling, confusing about this is why would Jesus, after offering the living water, and all of us probably would track with him through that discussion up to verse 15, 14, 15, where he's talking about how he offers this living water, this spring that people will never thirst again. And, and we track with him and then all of a sudden he raises this issue of the woman's marital status and I suspect from the little bit I know of that culture and that time that Jesus could not have opened up a more painful wound in this woman's life than the one that he just opened up here. I mean, it feels like to me um, that he tore a scab off this woman's soul. Now. I think in our culture, we tend to read this as, oh, well, obviously this woman is a sinful woman. Obviously, you know, she must have left all of her husbands and kept running off to other men. And, and that is possible. That's the way we would read it from our North American perspective. I would argue that's probably not what's happened here. I would argue that in that culture, it was actually far more likely that each of the husbands that she had uh, decided to get rid of her and divorce her and put her away. That's the far more likely uh, reason for for her marital status. And I've actually got a hunch of something else, and this is just a, a possibility. Um, if you if you ask yourself why in that culture why would a husband get rid of a wife? And we might think, well, she must have burnt supper one too many times. Well, probably not. I would think that one of the most likely reasons that a woman like this would have bounced from husband to husband is because she couldn't have children. And none of the husbands that had taken her as a wife were able to produce a child with her. That's just a hunch. It doesn't, the story doesn't tell us that. 
But if that is true, and even if that part of the story isn't true, even if what I'm saying about her having been divorced by five husbands and now living in a some kind of a common law relationship, uh, but, but imagine if it was because she was barren, she couldn't bear children, which in that culture was, was a huge shame, you know, aside from uh, of being divorced five times, but to not, to be a woman and not be able to bear children in that culture was, uh, was horrible uh, because people believed that it was God's judgment. There was some, something wrong with you. God was judging you and not allowing you to have children. So when I see Jesus bring this up, it's shocking to me. It's somewhat troubling to me. But there's something beautiful about it because I believe that the scab that he was opening up was, was not just about her sin. Obviously, this woman absolutely was a sinner, just like all of us are. But the wounds that she was carrying due to the sins of others. Is that why Jesus brought this up? She had a life of shame. The fact that she'd been married five times, now living common law, maybe. The fact that she didn't have children. By the way, I kind of wonder if if she was never able to have children. I wonder if she didn't come to the well in the morning because all the women came together and brought all their kids. And there she was, if she went with them, the one that didn't have any. And yet for all of this, we find this woman is hopeful. Notice in verse 19, she didn't want to dwell too long on her marital history. She says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on the mount, on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So I'm not sure if she was trying to change the subject, but she recognized that Jesus was at the very least a prophet. And then notice verse 25, she says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I find that really interesting. Like, it seems like this woman had, for whatever her religion was or whatever her beliefs were as a Samaritan, she still had this remnant of Jewish thinking and Jewish belief that there was a Messiah coming, a king, a Jewish king was coming. And he was going to fix things that were wrong. And he was going to explain all of all of these things. And so she had hope for the Messiah, which I think is, is, is really neat. So that's the part of the story that we fixate on. I've kind of glossed over a lot of it. Um, and there's a reason for that. I want us to move on. And I want us to think about the disciples. Verse 27 says, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. There it is again, that Jewish Samaritan prejudice. We don't talk to Samaritan women. Uh, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? They had enough respect for Jesus not to question him. Verse 28, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. So <clears throat> what I see in this story is that the disciples um, were like every other Jewish person. Um, they disliked Samaritans. I've used the word hate here. I suspect that's probably how they felt. You might have noticed that uh, when did the woman head back? When did the conversation with Jesus end? It's when the disciples showed up. Uh, maybe coincidence or maybe uh, it was her discomfort 
with what she already sensed. And by the way, when she had been coming out to the well, um, probably she passed the disciples heading into the village to buy food. So whether anything was said or even not said, um, I'm sure that she felt and experienced all the usual Jewish prejudices against Samaritans from the disciples. Here's a verse from Luke 9, 54. This is a story that takes place in Samaria. And Jesus was at that time again traveling through Samaria. And there was a certain village uh, that wouldn't welcome them because Luke tells us they were heading to Jerusalem. So they wouldn't allow them in their village. So this is, uh, this is James and John, the sons of thunder. I mentioned this verse um, a month or two ago. And they, they say to Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Uh, I would argue that, that that statement would demonstrate a whole lot of prejudice, dislike, and even hatred. Let's just, let's just, let's go Sodom and Gomorrah on these Samaritans. Why don't we do that? And uh, Jesus, of course, in that instance, rebuke them for further attitude. Um, so that's where the disciples are at. And I want us to think a little bit about Jesus. Where was Jesus at? Verse 31, the disciples urged Jesus, said, Rabbi, eat something. Remember, he had sat by the well because he was tired. They'd gone into the village to get some food. So this is their love for him, their concern for him. He's their rabbi, their master. So they've brought food for him. When you prepare food for somebody, you want them to enjoy it. But verse 32, he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? He says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So what do we learn from this? Well, here's one of the missing parts of the story that we don't think about and we don't we don't learn from the way that we should we we have jesus opening his own heart to us obviously to his disciples but because the gospels were written to people like us who claim to be followers of jesus or who may have an interest in following jesus and we are meant to learn the same things about jesus that his disciples were meant to learn and of course because they are his disciples and we are his disciples. We are meant to emulate this. We're meant to be like Jesus and become what he is. So what Jesus is saying here is that his life was fueled by the will and work of God. Did you see it? Verse 32, I have a food to eat that you know nothing about. It reminds me a little bit about um, that famous statement. The Old Testament statement, Jesus quoted it when he was tempted by Satan and said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's kind of like what he's saying here. There, there's a food that he has, that he will eat, that he needs. It's it's like a nourishment. It's, it's the fuel of his life. And he explains what it is in verse 34. It is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Now, when Jesus came to the end of his life, he could, he could say, I think in this very gospel, we would find Jesus praying to his father and saying, I have finished the work you have given me to do. We see Paul, the apostle Paul said something similar at the end of his life when he 
talked about how his his life was being poured out uh, like a drink offering, and he and he says, "I've I've run the race. I've finished the course." I want us to think about our own lives for a moment and ask the question: Are we are we finishing the work that God has for us to do? And of course, the work that God has for us to do is a continuation of the work that God had for Jesus to do. Are we on that agenda? Is that the fuel of our life, that we just want to do what God has for us? Ephesians 2 says that, uh, talks about how we're, we're saved by grace through faith. And then it goes on to say that, uh, that God has prepared these good works for us to do. He prepared them for us beforehand. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has an agenda for you. He has a plan for your life. He wants you to be fueled by the word of God, by the will of God. He wants your passion to be to finish the work that God has for you and, and for me as well. So what a lesson that Jesus gives his disciples. I, I find this is one of the most profound things in, in the whole passage. But again, we, we often miss it. Next, he does this. Verse 35. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and other reaps is true. I sent you to reap which you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now, I want to just take you back to uh, verse 28. This is the woman, describes her leaving her water jar. She went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And verse 30 says, They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So while these sayings of Jesus, while this teaching about the disciples being ready for harvest and and lifting their eyes and seeing the reality of the harvest all around them. Here's what I picture. I picture that while he's saying these things, there is a crowd, and we don't know how many people, but there's a group or crowd of people, Samaritan people, who are coming down the road, and nobody could miss it because they would have been talking and there would have been dust uh, blowing. And, and... <laughs> I just wonder if as Jesus is saying what we read in verse 35, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Is it possible that as Jesus was saying that, he pointed down the road towards the village that they had just been in. And there was a group of people coming toward them, a group of people that the disciples had no interest in talking to, being around, certainly no interest in uh, sharing the good news of the kingdom with. Is it possible that as Jesus said, lift your eyes and look at the fields that are ripe for harvest, he actually pointed. Maybe they were just 200 yards, 300 yards, 50 yards away, they're coming in. He already sees the discomfort of the disciples as they 
realize they're about to be in the company of a whole bunch of Samaritan people and Jesus doesn't seem to be in any hurry to leave. That's what Jesus was doing here. He was showing his disciples that Samaria, Samaria was ready for harvest. There's some interesting words here about how other people have sown and and actually that's true in this story. In fact, I would argue that what happens in the first half of, of John 4, Jesus uh, speaking to the woman and and creating in her this spiritual hunger, which causes her to go and get a, a bunch of other people who come out, and we're going to find out in a moment, are ready to be harvested. Jesus has already done the work, and Jacob has already done the work, and the Old Testament prophets have already done the work. Now it's their opportunity to be there to invite these people to salvation in Christ. Uh, in my first summer serving in uh, Gory Bible Fellowship, uh, Claude Martin, who some of you would know, had been witnessing to a, a man, a neighbor of his, and uh, for several weeks or even months. And in my first summer, just new on the job, I had the privilege in my office to lead Steve to the Savior. And it was an amazing privilege, but I can tell you, I hadn't done all the work there. Um, Claude Martin and others had loved this man and shared the gospel with this man and 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 put it on display for this man and and I got to be there when he received Christ. What a privilege! Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is a rabbi. The disciples are his apprentices. The calling on their lives is that they would go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth to take the gospel of Jesus. And they had no heart, no interest, no vision, no passion to take the gospel to Samaritan people or to non-Jewish people of any kind. Do you see why John 4 is so important? If they were going to be followers of Jesus, their prejudices against Samaritans and non-Jewish people and other kinds of people, even Jewish people that they didn't like, had to be overcome. And I believe that's why Jesus had to go through Samaria. Uh, the end of the story tells us what I've alluded to already. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Now, I assume that because Jesus stayed, the disciples also stayed. We don't know that for sure, but I would assume that they did. I just wonder, I, I wish I could be a fly on the wall to see how that went. Was there a change of heart over those two days? Did, did they begin to build any friendships with these new believers? Were their hearts softened to, to actually love and to appreciate them? Verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So if John 4 is a, is a picture I wonder if we've missed the main event. 
the story of the woman is incredible. There's, there's actually a lot of wonderful lessons we can learn about how we might share our faith with someone. Beautiful story. But I would argue that what's more important than that one woman or that one village is that these 12 disciples were taught a, a, a crucial lesson. A lesson that if they didn't learn it, they could not truly be followers of Jesus. They could never fulfill his mission. They could never do his will until their hearts were changed. Uh, this is a neat little verse from Acts chapter 8. Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is Peter and John after the after their three years with Jesus, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, after they'd learned some of these lessons, and now they were putting it into practice. Now they believed what Jesus told them, that the harvest was ripe. Now they were ready not to call down fire on Samaritan villages, but to actually go share the good news of Jesus. So what about us? Do we see ourselves in this story? Do we recognize that there's a calling on us, that we are to follow Jesus to the harvest. I wonder if if we find ways to excuse ourselves from that responsibility. We say, well, I'm not I don't really have the gift of evangelism. Maybe other maybe Claude Martin and people like him have that gift. I don't have that gift. But we don't have we we don't really have any theological or scriptural reason to say that. When Paul spoke to his son in the faith, Timothy, a man who seemed timid and maybe himself struggled to be bold in sharing the faith. He said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. I feel like he was saying, Timothy, I know you don't think you're an evangelist, but I'm asking you to fake it. Do the work of an evangelist anyway, even if you don't feel like you're gifted in that way or skilled in that way. And it's our privilege. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. When demons tried to speak up and, and tell people or identify Jesus to a crowd of people, we know who you are, you're the son of God, Jesus silenced them. And I believe the reason that he silenced them is that he would not grant those demons the privilege of speaking his name to the crowds. But he has granted us that privilege and opportunity. And he is already at work in people's hearts. And as we meet people in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, as you talk to them, get to know them and find out about their, uh, the, the shame that they carry and their pain, you will find that God's already been working there. And uh, it may just be our privilege, not just to share the good news with them, but to see them receive it. Isn't that what God has called us to do? Isn't that what should fuel us? Isn't that what should be our food? Lord, just give me that opportunity to share the good news with someone. Of course, this is how we know that this is our calling. Jesus prayed in John 17, as I sent, as, sorry, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world, speaking both of his own disciples and all of us. And the Great Commission says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Uh, the calling that Jesus gave to his disciples has become our calling. He said, go and make disciples. Teach those disciples to obey everything I've commanded you. You know what that means? 
it means that the command to go make disciples is now a command that's come to us. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean to follow Jesus to the harvest? Let me give you a few things to think about. Number one, we have to open our hearts to love people. And where we find that our hearts are blocked, our hearts are prejudiced, our hearts are filled with angst or hatred towards somebody. And there's lots of people in our culture. Uh, it's interesting how COVID has uh, has brought out some of, of that angst that we feel, uh, or, or perhaps political things. But we have to have open hearts. And where we find prejudice in our hearts, uh, perhaps to someone who is from a different religion or someone who perhaps we might view as, uh, 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 you know, being from a, a perspective of, of sexual sin, uh, God wants us to have open hearts. And I believe that if Jesus were here taking us from town to town, he would, he would show us our blind spots. He would show us where we are not loving the people that he was sent to love. So we need to open our hearts to love people. We need to open our lives to know people. Jesus spent two days with these people. Uh, he, he talked to the woman at the well. In fact, he even asked her for a drink. I love that part. But Jesus just wasn't the one dishing out blessings. He actually was willing to participate in society and ask this woman who happened to have a pot if she would give him a drink. Open your lives to people. Um, and it's okay for us to express our own needs, even as we share our faith with people that don't yet know Jesus. Um, how in your life do you find ways to be involved in the community? It's so important. When's the last time that we spoke to our neighbors, uh, looked for ways to engage in conversations in school or in, or in the lunchroom at work? Open your life so that you will know people. Open your hands to serve people. This is such an um, creates so many open doors in our culture where people are suspicious of of religion and religious people showing practical ways serving people being kind is a way that uh, not only opens our hearts to them it opens their hearts to the message and then of course we can't forget this 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 is crucial that we open our mouths to speak the good news to people i know for many of us this is the scary part this is the hard part we have god almighty living within us putting words in our mouths and enabling us to do this um, i believe that if we would seek to obey god and if we would ask him to enable us to do this uh, and by the way if he first gives us a love for somebody that's that's really the the most important thing if you truly love someone who needs to hear the good news you're going to give them the good news and God can help you, help us to do that. So follow, follow Jesus to the harvest. Why did Jesus need to go through Samaria? I believe he had a really big lesson to teach his disciples. I think it's a lesson that we need to learn from him as well. Let me just pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Jesus. He's not only the one who saves and rescues us from sin and transforms us, he's the one who shows us what it truly looks like to be, to be kind, to be human, and certainly, Lord, what it looks like to be a Christian. So, Father, help us to long for the same food that fueled him, this longing to do your will and to finish your work. 
Uh, Lord, give us eyes to see that that is your calling on us too. And I pray that you would enable us to do this. Uh, we want to do it for your honor and glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's just close with this. Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible for that matter, chapter 22, and the end of, uh, of that chapter, verses 22 and verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, He who testified to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Here we are, 2,000 some years later, we still believe that Jesus is coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So the grace of, of the Lord Jesus be with you as you go out, as you serve him, as you be his ambassadors in your field this week. God bless you.